0: You're in Romans chapter 13, and we're going to take the time to read the second half of the chapter tonight from verse 8 down to verse 14, and by the Lord's help, I want to speak to you tonight on this subject about walking in newness of life, walking in newness of life. Romans chapter 13, the Bible says in verse number eight, Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law, and that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day. Not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envy. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. And verse 14 will really be our primary text and key verse that we want to think about tonight. Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. We know that when Christ comes into the heart of a man, he makes that man a new creature in Christ Jesus. We know that it is the divine purpose of God that when we're saved, that we would begin to walk in what the Bible terms the newness of, of life. That's a Bible phrase. comes from several of Paul's epistles. He expresses it that way. Although this is the plan of God, and we know that it will ultimately be completed when we make it to heaven, amen? We will experience the fullness of the newness of life. We should acknowledge tonight that far too often the full potential of walking in newness of life is actually left unrealized in many believers' lives. Can I, can I go so far as to say in most, if not all, believers' lives? I don't, I don't think it's a stretch to say that there's not a one of us here tonight who knows the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been saved. We've been given the newness of life in Christ. And yet, We we struggle to realize the full potential of all that God has for us when we think about this walking in newness of life. The reason for this uh, failure on our part can obviously be traced to the greatest adversary that defies your attempts and mine to lay claim to the victory that God has made available to us. You know, we blame a lot of things on the devil, and the devil, to be sure, is an adversary that we ought to be aware of. He's an adversary the Bible warns us about. We're not ignorant of his devices. We blame a lot of things on the world and the culture around us, but I want to tell you tonight, neither of those are the greatest adversary that you face in this what we, what we want to think about tonight in this endeavor of walking in the newness of life. The greatest adversary that you and I face without a doubt is none other than your own flesh and mine. The book of Romans is really a treatise about the Gospel, just to set the context here. A primary theme in the book of Romans would be the provision of the Gospel to enable the believer to walk in newness of life. In other words, the way that it's supposed to work, God saved you because He wants you to walk in newness of life. That's the goal. He wants you to be like Jesus Christ. Earlier in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul clearly expounds the doctrines of condemnation. All of us are guilty before God. He, he describes the doctrine of justification by faith alone, by the grace of God. The choir sang about that tonight. Praise God for justification in the blood of Jesus Christ. He talks about sanctification and our ultimate glorification. But now when we get to chapter 13, in the immediate context here, Paul is in the middle, really from chapter 12 to chapter 16, the last few chapters of the book, he's in the middle of exploring what are the practical areas of what it looks like to walk worthy of the gospel or to walk in newness of life. I believe Romans 13 and verse 14 is really a primary key verse. There is so much here, we don't have the time to unlock it all tonight. I want to look at a couple of things that God has laid on my heart. But I do believe tonight, if we would take Romans 13 and verse 14, put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. If we would take that verse and really understand it, Really spiritually take it in and digest it. And then as we learned about in Sunday school this morning, not just understand the knowledge of it and theorize about what it means to put on Christ and talk about it in Sunday school and in our small groups and sound really spiritual and put it into all these you know big glowing terms of what it means to put on Christ and what it means to not make provision for the flesh and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But if we would actually apply it, amen? If we would actually live it, if we would actually put it really into the daily fabric of our life, we would begin to realize the full potential that God has for us to walk in newness of life. What does it mean tonight when the Bible says to put on the Lord Jesus Christ? How does a believer actually go about this business of refraining himself or herself from fulfilling the lust? Of the flesh. What do I need to do as a believer in Jesus Christ in order to walk in newness of life as God designed me to? Before we can answer those questions with God's help, we want to do that tonight. I think there's some practical things here that will help us. But first, I think we need to answer a more fundamental and basic question, and that would be the question of what is. The flesh. You know, we use these words a lot. The Bible refers much to the flesh. We talk about the flesh a lot. But I think sometimes, at least, I'll speak for myself. I think sometimes I use Bible vocabulary, and uh, you know, if I was pressed on what does it mean, I would have to ponder for a few moments and try to be able to clearly articulate. Sometimes it's a little bit fuzzy in the brain. What exactly are we referring to when the Bible says that we ought not make provision for the flesh? What is this flesh? Some have misunderstood the flesh and thought it refers only to the physical body. And certainly sometimes in the Bible when we read the word flesh, actually the very first time it's used, it refers to the flesh of Adam, the very first man, and it absolutely did in that, in that context refer to the physical body that God made for Adam. There are other times where the word flesh referred, um, <clears throat> excuse me, refers when Jesus came into the world, amen? And, and God prepared a body for him. We, we say God became flesh. Flesh, the Word became flesh, that, and that literally means nothing more than his his body. He became a a man, he had a physical body as you do as I do, but you know when we think about it most of the time in the Bible, we understand that the flesh refers to more than just you know what you see and, and touch and feel in your in your earth suit, as brother uh, Brother, uh, yeah, a good preacher, a friend of mine used to call it that. Brother Kirtman, he said, uh, this is just our earth suit. Amen? (laughs) It's just our earth suit. I like that. You know, this is just a house. And this is part of the flesh. But there's so much more to the flesh. And I think it would be beneficial for our understanding tonight. Some of this will be review for many of you. Maybe for some of you, this will be the first time you heard some of this, but I think it's good for us tonight to just lay the groundwork quickly about what the Bible actually teaches about the flesh. Because I'm I'm just going to say tonight, it's really good for us to be reminded about things even though we already know them. One of the reasons for that is because we live in a really crazy world tonight, don't we? We live in a world that is redefining everything. One of the things, the world is confused about everything, but one of the things the world is extremely confused about would be this subject of human nature. The world does not understand human nature. The world tries, the world tries to figure out who am I? Why am I here? Where did I come from? Where am I going? How do I put my life together? How do I solve the problems of my life? How do I figure all of this out? And there's psychologists and psychiatrists and people who study anthropology and they they go through all of these courses and they're trying to figure out man to man, woman to woman, who we are and how we work. And here, right in the Word of God, I want to tell you tonight, do a study sometime on this word, the flesh, in the Bible. I'm going to give you just the, the quick version of what I learned in the last, as I just refreshed my mind with what the Bible says about the flesh. To summarize it, we would say, when we refer to the flesh, we're referring to the earthly nature of a man that is separated from the divine influence, which is therefore corrupt and completely depraved. I'm going to back that up with the Word of God, and for the next few moments, I'm going to read some things that I wrote here, because this is foundational introduction, and then I want to get to where we're, where we're going tonight. So bear with me, you listen fast, and I'll try, to read, I'll try to read fast, okay? But I want to put this in context, because I think it's really important to understand what we're talking about. Because here the Bible tells us we're not to make provision for the flesh, it would be good for us to have a good grasp of what our flesh really is. So, to understand it, we'd have to go back to the very first man. Back to the beginning. We know that God created Adam as a three-part being, amen? Adam had a body, soul, and a spirit. Originally, he was created to live eternally in fellowship with God. There was no sin and there was no sense in which Adam's body, soul, or spirit would ever die before sin. The body was created as a house to engage and interact both physically with this material world and spiritually for Adam to enjoy fellowship with God. The soul we would define as the mind, emotions, and the will. Part of the inner man of Adam. How he thought, how he felt. The decisions that he would take. His spirit, the third part of his being, was that part that God gave Adam. That was part of his nature that was alive to God. Was able to walk with God. So hence the divine order would be that Adam's spirit was to be ruled by his relationship with God. When his spirit was ruled by a right relationship with God, that would in turn cause Adam to choose to rule his soul and body in a manner that was pleasing to God. That's what God intended. The spirit of, of Adam in right fellowship with God, receiving instruction from God, choosing to please God, would inform Adam's soul, his mind, emotions, and will, and would cause Adam to make choices within his soul that would be expressed through his body, and all of this would bring pleasure and glory to God. Now we, we have this all backwards and upside down today. When people try to, in the world, unsaved people, when they try to understand who you are and how are we made up, they, they turn the order around. We talk about body, soul, and spirit. God actually talks about spirit, soul, and body. That's actually the divine order. Spirit, right with God, controlling the inner man, thereby controlling the outer man, all bringing glory to God. When Adam sinned, he died. The Bible says so. The soul that sinneth shall die. God said, don't eat the fruit of that tree. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. Some have read that and and saw that Adam lived to be 900 and some odd years and said, well, I guess Adam didn't die right away. Actually, that would be a wrong conclusion. Adam did die right away. His body did not immediately decompose and have to be buried. That lasted for another 900 some years. But Adam absolutely died right away. There was more to Adam than just the physical earth suit that God gave him. His soul and his spirit were immediately cut off. His fellowship with God was broken. Adam died. The Bible will tell us in Romans 5 that He brought death upon all men, for all have sinned. Adam's body began to die, his spirit was dead to God, and as a result his soul was darkened. So we would say this, the flesh refers to the natural state of man, whereby we are separated from God because of the curse of sin. So, what is this flesh then? What does it look like? How does it interact with me? on a daily basis? Well, here's some things the Bible says about the flesh. Keep listening. Scripture teaches the flesh has a will. The flesh involves our mind. The flesh has its own desires. The flesh has its own wisdom and purposes. Your flesh makes judgments and seeks its own glory. All of this is to say that your flesh believes itself to be very clever. But the reality is that your flesh is corrupt. The flesh is contrary to the Spirit, the Bible says. The flesh, all all of these are, are statements right from the Word of God. I don't have all the verse references for you here, but trust me, Every one of these comes right out of the pages of Scripture. I'm not adding to any of these. This is what your Bible says about your flesh. It says your flesh is sold under sin as a slave to that sin. The flesh is not subordinate to the law of God, and it cannot be. The flesh of man is ruled by his own lust to rebel against the law of God. What does this look like when the flesh rebels against the law of God? Well, it takes the form of the flesh producing envy, strife, division. The flesh finds finds value and confidence in accomplishments and associations. The flesh lusts after uncleanness. The flesh despises authority and is presumptuous. That's what the Bible says about your flesh. Your flesh is your default nature. It's who you are. And it is, apart from Christ, depraved and contrary to God. The Bible says the only remedy for the flesh is it needs to be crucified and the new nature of Jesus Christ must be birthed into your inner man. When a man is born again of the Spirit of God, he is given new spiritual life. That's what the Bible says. That's what it means to be born again, John chapter 3, by the Spirit of God. So the Spirit of God moves in when a person is saved, moves into the Spirit of that man and gives him the ability now to have a new relationship with the Almighty God. The Spirit brings life. The Spirit brings The Holy Spirit, that's what we're talking about now. He brings freedom from the bondage of the flesh and sin. Do you understand this tonight about your flesh? The only thing your flesh is able to do as far as God is concerned, the only thing your flesh can do is to sin. The Spirit is only able to please God But the flesh is only able to sin. There's a lot of people who never got saved because they couldn't accept that truth from the Word of God. We have a tendency, we have a desire deep down inside of us to want to believe that man is basically good. How many of you heard that in your philosophy class somewhere along the line? That's the, that's the prevailing opinion of most people in the world. We're basically good. You know, most people, we got a, a good spark within us. We just need to fan the flame that is contrary to the teaching of the Word of God. The Bible says, "In my Paul said it this way, "...in my flesh..." dwelleth no good thing. The only thing that I can do apart from Christ is sin. That's it. I cannot. I'm not, making, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not even exaggerating this a little bit. The Bible says they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans chapter 8. It is impossible apart from the Spirit of God. However, when the Holy Spirit of God begins to live inside your spirit, you have the divine power necessary to defeat the flesh and live in a manner pleasing to God, but it's up to you. So we're talking about this tonight, walking in newness of life. In other words, the flesh is that which must die if you are going to walk in newness of life. This is a hard truth, actually, for us to want to accept. Because this flesh, and I hope that, that, that I, I think most of you are familiar with most of those principles that I laid out from the Word of God. That's a little bit of review. But I wanted to just put it there ...quickly in a few moments to to bring our minds together to the same place. To understand what we're talking about. Because even as born-again believers... We are constantly tempted to to begin to believe the philosophy of the world around us. We are tempted to begin, and and so what it looks like is this, we're tempted to begin to look at ourselves through rose-colored glasses and actually begin to think more highly of ourselves than we actually ought to think. The Bible says there is nothing good in my flesh. My flesh needs to be crucified. In fact, in order to be saved, your flesh was crucified. Not your body. No, you didn't have to go get on a cross and be nailed there. We're not talking physically the body, but absolutely the old man, the old nature, the part that the part of you that our brother was talking about tonight that all he wanted was the world. All he wanted was his own way. What is that? That's the flesh. Could you identify I could identify with that. I remember that before I came to the Lord. I remember that right now in my life, because here's the thing: just because you get saved, the flesh doesn't just magically disappear, does he? We now have two natures: warring within our bosom. The spirit of the flesh and the spirit of God. The old man and the new man. The one that wants to walk my own way, do my own thing, and live my own life contrary to the laws and principles of God. And the one who says, but I love God. He loved me. He washed me in his blood and I want to please him. And there is a conflict between those two. The spirit lusteth against the flesh. The flesh lusteth against the spirit. These are contrary the one to the other. So, if we are going to actually walk in newness of life, if we are going to find the ability to overcome sin and the temptation that is so appealing to our flesh, the old man that still resides and is alive and well within our, within our being. What do we need to do to, to be able to accomplish this victory, to walk in this newness of life that God promises? Notice in this passage, I want to just give you three thoughts on the next 15 minutes here. I still have your attention. Say amen. amen. Good, amen. Just three points, five minutes a point, and we'll be done. Amen? You see if I can stay on point or not. All right. Number one, in verse 11, there's three things we need to do. Three things that require your attention, your action, if you want to walk in newness of life. You know, the principles are really easy, but the application of them is really challenging. Stay with me tonight. In verse number 12, I'm sorry, verse number 11, the Bible says, and that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The first thing that we ought to do if we're going to be able to walk in newness of life and overcome the power of the flesh that lives inside of us, the greatest enemy that we have, number one, we need to anticipate the fullness of our salvation. That's what he's talking about in verse 11. Did you see that? Now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The idea of our salvation, you say, well, I thought we were already saved. Well, we are, amen. When you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're saved immediately, born again. You don't have to wait a week or a month or a year or to the end of your life to find out and say, well, I hope I got saved. No, listen, you can know today that you're saved, amen. Salvation is instantaneous. It's immediate. Deliverance from the, uh, the power of sin, and the curse of sin, the penalty of sin. Praise God for that. But you know, this salvation, this full salvation, this deliverance that he's speaking of in verse 11, he's talking about the fullness of your salvation when you are, that moment when you meet Christ, when you make it to heaven, when you cross over to the other side, your flesh will be destroyed and you will be delivered from the presence of sin. What he's saying in verse 11, as believers, we should live anticipating that day. Knowing that this is the purpose of God. He says knowing the time. You know of all people, God's people ought to be able to discern the time. We ought of all people to know that this time that we live in is just such a, a short little window. I was talking to someone yesterday about this very fact. I said, what do you think the purpose of your life is? Is it really just to be born and, and go to school and go to, go to college and get a good job and make a lot of money and acquire a lot of nice things and then retire and eventually get sick and be buried? And you know, that's the, is that the summation of life? Is that really all there is to it? Oh, listen, there's so much more to life than that. Amen? There's, and as, as God's people, we ought to discern the times. We ought to know that it is now, He says, it is high time. High time speaks of urgency. It speaks of this very hour. In other words, there's, there's an action here that cannot wait. It's high time to do what? High time to awake out of sleep. Now, he's not talking to the people that fell asleep on the preacher. He's talking to believers who have fallen into a spiritual stupor. He's talking to these believers in Rome who were tempted, just like you and I are, tempted to to fall into... the, The idea is a spiritual torpor. It's an interesting word. It means... That's literally what this word sleep in this verse means, though. It's the idea of numbness, inactivity, and loss of sensation. Did you ever, did you ever have your, uh, you sit in one position too long? For me, as I get older, it doesn't take as long as it used to. But, you know, it can be just a few short seconds. And you sit in this one position too long, and your leg falls asleep. And did it ever really, like, really fall asleep, like, really good? And you didn't realize it, and you tried to get up. And you tried to walk, and you just thought, you know, you didn't know what was going on. And man, that thing is just like dead weight. It's numb. It's, uh, it's inactive. It doesn't work anymore. You lost all sensation. That's the idea, but in a spiritual sense. He says, spiritually, you're in danger. You've fallen asleep. And it's time to wake up. It's time to be engaged. It's time to be active. It's time to be aware. What are we to be engaged about? What is, what is the motivation for this? Because now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. That's what he says. You know what? It's, it's easy to wake up when you anticipate something, isn't it? Sure. Did you ever, I, I, don't, I don't know about you. Maybe it's just me. But whenever I have to catch an early morning flight, maybe a red-eye flight or shortly after that, you know, 7 o'clock or something, and you got to be up by 3.30 in the morning so you can get ready and you can get your bags together and you got to be out the door by 5 o'clock so you can be at the airport at 6 o'clock so that you can get through the security line and do all that you got to do, you know, so you you got all this stress about there's a... There's, there's a lot of steps between me where I am in my bed and me getting on the airplane seat in about five hours, right? So there's a lot of steps between here and there. And I don't know about you, but I can't sleep. That night before I set my alarm for 3.30 or whatever, and it feels like I wake up every hour because it's like I don't want to miss it. That I oversleep. I can't can't afford to miss my alarm. If I miss the alarm, I'll be late. I'll miss the flight. You know, it's easy to wake up when you're anticipating something. And here what he's saying is to the children of God, we ought to be busy anticipating the fullness of our salvation. What does this look like? Ask God to feed your longing to be delivered from sin so that you may be like Him. You know, brethren, it is easy If we're not paying attention to get comfortable in this world with our sin, that is a grave danger. That is an absolute enemy, adversary to you being able to walk in newness of life. As long as you're comfortable sitting around enjoying the pleasures of sin with the other worldlings around you, how would you ever think that you would be able... To walk in newness of life. Anticipate the fullness of your salvation. Number two in verse 14. You're still with me. I'm still on time. I went over by a minute, but we're staying pretty close. Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing is appropriate your life to be lived for Christ. You notice the first word in verse 14? But. But. It's a contrast to the previous verses where he's talking about the old way of living. He talks in verse number 12 and 13 and he talks about rioting and drunkenness. He says we're not to, we're not to walk in those ways. We're not to do those works of darkness anymore. Put away the rioting and the drunkenness. That's revelry and carousing. Chambering and wantonness. No, not not like that. That's unbridled indulgence. That's deviant sexual behavior and cohabitation. These things ought not be named among the children of God. We're to walk in newness of life. Strife and envy. We know what that is. Quarreling. Fighting. Because somebody else has something that you think you deserve. And the list can go on and on. Many other works of the flesh that are not to be part of your life as a new creature in Christ. That's why he says, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. That literally means you are to account that your life is Christ's life. It is not your own. Not your own. Doesn't the Bible say something like that? I am not my own. Amen? When when Christ saved me, you think about the cost of your salvation, that Jesus shed His own blood to purchase your salvation, the forgiveness of your sins. You don't belong to yourself anymore. Appropriate your life to be lived for Christ means that you're to set apart your life for a particular use, exclusive of all other uses. Do you ever hear the word... Misappropriation. We talk about misappropriation of funds, right? I think you all know what that is. To misappropriate funds is actually a criminal offense. You can get in a lot of trouble for that. What is what what does that mean? How does a person misappropriate funds? Well, they take money that somebody gave for one purpose and they use it for an altogether different purpose. And when that gets found out, you're in a lot of trouble. Because you took something that didn't belong to you, that was not intended for how you used it, and you, you basically became a thief of somebody else's money. It's a criminal offense. But I think there's a lot of believers tonight that are guilty of misappropriation of God's purchased possession. You know, the Bible says it just that plainly. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's, not mine. Paul said it like this in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth In me And the life which I now live in the flesh, he says, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. What does it mean to appropriate your life to be lived for Christ? What does it mean to put on Christ? It means that I live every day with this thought in my mind, I don't belong to me. This life is not my life. I'm not allowed to do what I want to do, I must bring myself in alignment with the will and the Word of God. If I'm going to walk in newness of life, anticipate the fullness of your salvation, appropriate your life to be lived for Christ, we're still on time. I made up 15 seconds. Hey, Amen. This, this thing is bothering me tonight. It's like counting down. I think it gets faster. Verse 14, right at the end of the verse. This is really important. Please stay with me and don't miss this. He says, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. The third thing we need to do, and at first I picked this word because it started with a letter A, but the more I thought about it, the more I liked it because it's actually really, really true. It doesn't just fit the alliteration. It's always, it's always nice when your alliterated word is actually, you know, a good choice. And so the third thought is this. You need to asphyxiate the lust of the flesh. Now, I did That's fine. I chuckled, too, when I first thought of it. But think about it. The Bible says in other places that we are to... Crucify the flesh. Is that, is that not true? Crucify the flesh. What happens when somebody is crucified? How do they die? Asphyxiation. That's actually the means of death. And that's actually literally what God is saying when he says crucify the flesh. And the more I thought about it, the more I began to realize there's actually a lot of truth in in this concept of what is recorded in verse 14. Make not provision for the flesh. On the surface, we're like, yeah, yeah, I've read that before, I know that. The idea of provision is the idea of forethought, considering in advance, right? So, if you make provision for your family, well, how do you do that? Well, you go to work, and so you can... Put some money aside so that you're able to pay the bills, so that you're able to provide a place for them to live and food for them to eat and meet the needs of their life. Provision. It takes a little bit of planning. It takes a little bit of forethought. It takes a little bit of intentional effort. Well, what's interesting here is this is a negative command. He says, make not provision for the flesh. So the obvious inference is that it's actually really a big temptation for you and I to begin to make provision for the flesh. He says, don't do that. That's a bad idea. That's not a good plan. Don't think about providing for your flesh. I'm just going to say this, it is actually impossible to put on Christ and make provision for the flesh at the same time. You know, in fact, oftentimes we, we fail in our efforts to put on Christ because we're so busy making provision for the flesh. There's different kinds of provision you can make for your flesh. There's that provision which is conscious intentional preparation to indulge the flesh. You don't have to tell me, but I know that every one of you who's a believer knows what I mean. Conscious, intentional effort to go out and get what you wanted, even though you knew it was a sin against God. Guilty. You know, this shows up in the entertainment that we choose Places that we go that we know we shouldn't go. Material that we feast our mind upon that we know is contrary to the law and the Word of God. Friends that you spend time with just because you enjoy their company, but you know that their company is taking you away from God. That's the conscious provision for the flesh. He says don't do that. You know there's other provision for the flesh that's unconscious though. Maybe this is a bigger struggle for you. These are just the fleshly habits of life. You easily fall into these habits without even trying. Why? Because your flesh is your default position. It's your it's your comfortable skin that you were born with. You got all these ways of living and acting and talking and places that you like to go before you got saved and Ways that you like to speak and treat other people. Things that you like to do. and After you got saved and Christ began to work in your life, the Word of God began to show you, nope, that's not right. Nope, that's not good. Change this. Do that differently. But you know very unconsciously, those fleshly habits of life crop right back up if we're not careful. Maybe for you this looks like neglecting the place of worshiping God. Maybe it looks like pursuing earthly treasure and priorities. Maybe it's other fleshly habits of sin from the inside. Things that maybe aren't as noticeable. They're not those egregious sins. They're not those obvious things. Oh, I wouldn't be caught dead going to the wrong place. Oh, no, no, no. But you would feast your mind upon the things that God condemns because it's in the privacy of your heart. Nobody sees and nobody knows, but God. And when we do this, we're providing for the flesh. We are giving our flesh the opportunity to fulfill its own wicked lust. That might look like evil speaking. That might look like envy or bitterness or anger or revenge. The list is long. We understand these things from the Word of God. So, one last thought, and I want to close with this. How do we asphyxiate the flesh? How do we cut it off? There's a principle. I don't have time to, 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 to lay this out. But in John 8, 44, this verse struck me in a different way. Go home and read it. It's a familiar verse. You know it. Jesus says to those Pharisees and those people in John 8 who are so contrary to Him, He says, You are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. For he was a murderer from the beginning, and he abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, because he is a liar and the father of it. You remember the verse, amen? Jesus makes a direct connection between the lust That Satan did, and the lies that Satan believed. And then Jesus, directed to those men, said, You're going to copy the lust of Satan. You're going to do the same things because you believe the same lies. This is actually all through the Word of God. Ephesians 4.22 and 23 talks about this. Other places, talks about how your lusts are deceitful. They lie to you. The lusts of the flesh, get this, are patterned after the lust of Satan. And they are fueled by the lies of the flesh. The lies that your flesh tells you. Can I help you understand this tonight? The lies that your flesh tells you. Oh, you got to have that. <laughs> oh, I know what God says. I know what the preacher said about that. You know, the Bible says committing adultery is a sin, but you know what? You just, you deserve this. You need this. It won't be bad for you. I know the Bible says there's consequences, but don't worry about it. That's not true. Hath God said, will it really be that way? The lies that your flesh tells you are the oxygen that feed the fire of your lust. Your heart is deceitful above all things, the Bible says. It is desperately Wicked. Even there in Jeremiah 17.9, there's a connection between the lies of your heart, it's deceitful, and the wickedness of your heart, the lust that you pursue. The Bible says to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. What does that mean? This is the way to actually put out, to suffocate, to asphyxiate the lust of the flesh. You say, well, how do I do it? What do I do about it? Well, the lust of the flesh, think about it this way, are quenched by the truth of the Spirit of God. They can't coexist, amen? Your flesh lies to you, tries to lead you down the road of temptation, and the Spirit of God, if you're born again, says, nope, you shouldn't do that. Nope, my word says that's not true. Nope, my word says that's false. And it's up to you who you're going to believe. You can't believe God's truth and your flesh's lie at the same time. You'll never believe God's truth and walk down the path of sin Never, ever, every time you choose sin, you can trace it back somewhere there were some lies that your flesh told you that you believed. You say, I, I want to I be serious about putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to walk in newness of life. I want to make not provision for my flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Here's a practical thing you can do. If you want to crucify the lust of your flesh, Cut off the air supply of lies. Replace them with the truth of the Spirit of God. That's this book. Renew your mind. Brethren, this is so critical. We must get our mind in the Word of God every day, all day long so that we can identify the lies and put them out with the truth of the Word of God.